This is Life with Alcohol and Drugs, a podcast from the charity Scottish Families Affected by Alcohol and Drugs. For this special episode for Alcohol Awareness Week, we're joined with Darren McLeister, the Family Support Development Officer for our Inverclyde Family Support Service. And we've also got Colin McIntosh, the Family Support Development Officer for our Eastern Bartonshire Family Support Service. And they also both run our quite new men's family support group as well. Um, so Alcohol Awareness Week takes place in November of each year. And this year, the theme is around alcohol and relationships and how alcohol can affect the relationships around us. Um, so we're all going to chat for a little while about this theme. Uh, so Colin and Daryl, you know all too well how alcohol affects our relationships, especially with the people that you're supporting every single day. Um, and I know you've brought along some quotes from the people um, that you're currently supporting, which are really important to share. So we're going to have a little chat about that and to hear people's real experiences. Um, Daryl, I'll let you take the lead. Thanks, Rebecca. Yeah, so I've brought along a quote today. I've brought along a couple of quotes, but the one I want to start with today is from a lady who kindly sent in her experience of what it's like, I suppose, to be to be a mum and to be a wife to someone that she describes as a as a functional alcoholic and, and really just goes into detail about her experience of that. So I'm just going to read that quote for you now. My husband is a functioning alcoholic. He holds down his job and can keep up appearances out with family life. Although not physically abusive, he's been extremely emotionally and mentally abusive. This made me withdraw from life in general, as I started to believe it was because of me that he was like this. Everything was my fault. I was to blame for the way everything is. I was so selfish. I was incredibly nasty. If I wasn't so self-obsessed, our relationship, our family life, our financial situation would be so different, as would be my husband's drinking. I actually began to hate him. I don't say this lightly. He made me cry numerous times a day, every day, so much so that my nine-year-old son would say, I love you, mummy. Don't listen to daddy. He always does this when he's drank too much cider. Well, that's, that's the end of the quote. And when that lady who, who I still work with in kind of Inverclyde um, sent that through to me, it really, really touched touched me. You know, I think it's it's very, very striking how how much the blame was transferred onto her almost and the ways in which she internalised that, you know, the 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 guilt, the shame, the idea that if she just fixed everything in her life, everything would be absolutely hunky-dory, everything would be okay. Um, and it, it just struck me as really, really painful. You know, I think it's that that almost that projection that we do when we're in a bad way, we project all of our faults onto someone else. And I think she was very much the victim of that. Her husband was, was in fact the one who maybe was being selfish at that point, but he was projecting all of his own his own ills onto onto her. So it was really, really striking. And, and I think aside from just how that lady was feeling on an emotional level, it was really striking when she said that she withdrew from life in general. And I just thought, how, how, how sad is that? You know, like she's she's not only withdrawn from this relationship that she has with her husband and the changes she's seen there. She's not only managing this relationship with her own son, but she's just withdrawn from all these other relationships in, in her whole life. You know, pulling back on them all. Suddenly, work. You know, works pull, pulling back on work environments, pulling back on on friends, pulling back on family. Just all of all of the relationships and the the web that this this lady would have in her life just all diminished somewhat um, by this this kind of core problem that she was experiencing um, deep down in it. And Colin, I know, I know you've had similar um, experiences with family members and how those those relationships round about become affected. I wonder if you've got any thoughts. I think it's it's kind of scary for myself seeing how many eyes are in that last bit of the statement. I, 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 I. And it's like if somebody says, well, how do you mean by mentally abusive? Mentally abusive to the point where the person's going, this must be my fault because I've got put in this corner. This is happening because I'm, I've had people saying it's because of you I'm doing this. I'm actually drinking because you put me under stress. And it's, I mean, it's, yeah, we all say there's no physical abuse there, but the mental abuse to me is more harmful for a longer period of time. This woman's withdrawn from the world, you know. Aye. 
it's interesting that isn't it that idea you know we, we sort of even the the language that the ladies use there although not physically abusive is almost a, a kind of like although it's not the worst one it has been emotionally abusive and actually from our, my point of view and as you've just said emotional and mental abuse can kind of a much longer last and, and more complex toll on someone than even physical abuse can sometimes so there is no there's no hierarchy there but even the way that's spoken about is is, is less than somehow it's not as bad it's not as bad that he's been emotionally abusing me as, as it would be been physically abusing me but here we see this 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 you know cacophony of relationships in this lady's life just just evaporating yeah i only think if you talk in addiction groups when i was working with addictions the guys in the group i'm just saying guys women and men will say i was never physically abusive to my kids i never had my kids in my way so and that's this i didn't do that and would everybody would ask in a group how many doors were broken in your house every every door was broken there was two or three windows the microwave was broken and if that's no physical as a physical statement aggression that's to me that's physical as hell that goes along with the mental just as well as it'd be trying to every tries to shy away from the physical one because it's the worst right, right. yeah and i think what this this also highlights is you know the the nine-year-old son and how he's having to manage that relationship and he's He's stepping into this role where he's trying to console mum um, against the dangers and the, the cautioner against this relationship. And, and I think about about him, you know, I, I remember um, when I was kind of nine, ten, you know, my mum my would go out on the very, very, very occasional night night out with her friends and she'd come back in a little bit tipsy. Um, and I remember how uncertain and, and cautious I felt, you know, I remember feeling so sensitive to it because it wasn't, she was like my mum, but she wasn't quite my mum. And, you know, th there's a real sensitivity uh, at that age and you really detect these slight differences in people. And um, so for a nine-year-old to have to really step up to that plate and actively be trying to console his own mum um, who's dealing with all this, it, it just you know both mum and son there are in, are in just such a predicament you know it's really really having such a big impact on them yeah i've had experience myself with a family member who's it was nine or ten year old son uh the dad was being really aggressive and it was just when lockdown had started and instead of seeing the person for two or three hours a day they were seeing them 24 hours a day in the midst of the reduction in chaos it's actually in your face and the young boy had said to the mum after a certain event and he said if my dad does that again i'll need to, i'll need to step in and this is this nine-year-old, I mean, maybe I think he was ten, a little bit older than nine, and he was actually physically going to step in and face up to this man, other than his mum being hurt. And that's that that did that that was that was actually a catalyst for him getting thrown out. She had the nerve and the, the kind of the, I don't know what it would be, the strength to phone up the police and say this, and I actually feel I'm in fear, and he was in assisted accommodation and things like. That. So that was a catalyst for him moving. This poor boy having to stand up to his dad physically, stand up to him. That's just through the alcohol, nothing else. No, because the dad's a bad guy, and it's just alcohol. Right, and the way it changes you. Yeah, it's uh, it's touching, isn't it? You know, and yeah, I just think, you know, this family. I still work with them today, and it's, you know, I can, I'm pleased to say there's been some positive changes there. You know, things have, have maybe moved on, and um, to some degree, Dad's willing, willingly accepted a little bit of help at this point, which is great. Um, but it, but it's still there, isn't it? You know, that that feeling of guilt, that feeling of like, did I did I cause this? Is this is this my fault? If I had just done something differently, if I had just been a little bit nicer to him at, at that moment, if I had just reacted in a slightly different way, would would I have changed all that? You know, would 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 I have made the difference there? And it just really touches on that massive subject. I think about you know we, we use words like enabling sometimes when we're doing work with people and, and it's quite a feels like a really dirty word to me it always feels like a really bad word like you're you're saying you're responsible for this problem but but you're not you know you can yeah there's things you can do behaviors maybe you're doing that would have made things easier or more difficult but you know that's like one percent of the pie the other 99 percent is that that one person's responsibility for their own behavior and the, the changes they want to see in their own life you know and you, you, that one percent is enough to to make you you know you chew over it at three in the morning every single night when you're lying awake going could i just influence that one percent could i make a difference here could i could i somehow drive this to a successful conclusion you know but but, but it's almost a, a drop in the ocean you know I, I, it's, I i think it really touches on that issue who is responsible for change and do we, we do we as family members sometimes put ourselves far too much in that position where we need to be responsible for the change that has to happen in front of us um but how how do we do that with how do we influence things in the right direction you know it's a, such a massive question i might use word that responsible responsibility i mean i've one family member who's got four kids four grown-up kids and three of the kids are successful as you would call it they've got jobs and they're getting on well with the world they've got families and houses and sort of go holidays and things and there's one other boy who's not and the mum said, that's fine, they're okay. Where did they go wrong with this one? Is it, 
Zither, I mean, I mean, ingredients in her menu, she had to do this with the other three, but this one, she's failed somewhere. There wasn't the right ingredients. She wasn't a good enough cook with this, the ingredients she had, and this person's turned out bad, and it's completely, and it's so hard to get her away from the fact that this is my fault. I am responsible for that. No, nice. That tapestry of decisions that comes into that, you know, that it's so hard to, you know, there is no, there is no smoking gun, is there? You know, you look back at what caused this, why did this happen? And you'll, you'll never find it. And it can often feel like a very fruitless search sometimes, which is sad to say, but often there isn't that one, that one single cause and we can't, we can't always change it. No, I mean, I, I've listened to a few kind of Gabor Mati YouTube videos and things that goes back to childhood trauma. And I think it's a bit kind of generalisation that childhood trauma, that's what happened. And that's how addicts start. But a lot of people don't have childhood traumas. You walk into the, the alcohol or the addiction and it's nobody's fault apart from the person's maybe made some wrong choices and got to that point. And it doesn't matter whether you're a good upbringing or a bad upbringing, whatever you call good and bad upbringings, but it's just stuff happens and you take the wrong decision once, then you do it again and that becomes where you go with your life. And it's just as hard to get rid of that whether it's been trauma or not. I know we do trauma-assisted training and things like that, but me, I hire a lot of people just get into the addiction just because that's what happens, who they're working, who they mix with, who they, who they, what sport they take up or whatever else is drink-related, what job they've got that's kind of drink-orientated, then yeah, it'd be very easy to get into. And then it's, who's, who's to blame then? then it's, who's responsible for that? You know, for, responsible for recovery, but who's responsible for the person getting into the addiction? It's just choices right. sometimes you make. I know it's important questions here. I think I really, I really like the way you put that there, Colin. You know, it's just, it's just making the wrong decision once and then doing it again. It's almost as, as simple as that. I think it's that's a really nice way of putting it. Yeah, but but why why then? And as I said, why then do mums and dads, especially, but you know, in my case, it's mostly mums in the books. Why is it that mum takes on the full responsibility for that person's life, even at 47 and 48? I've got guys of that age who are still the mum's still responsible for what they're doing. How do we, how do we, how does somebody get, get, get on with that or how do they get away with that for a number of years without coming at the conclusion that I'm not responsible? I've <laughs> <laughs> only had all the answers, you know, and, and I've spoke about that very issue today in some support calls I was on actually about how do we, how do you transfer that responsibility back when when you're, when you've got a maybe 30, 40 year old um, son or, or daughter um, and you recognise that you're taking more responsibility than, than you wish you had, but you can't, you can't transfer it back without there being really, really severe traumas and dramas and difficulties and, and speed bumps along the way. And that's that really hard part where the work needs to come in, you know, those regular weekly calls where your worker really helped to, to understand, well, I do need to transfer that responsibility back, but how do I do that? And the answer usually is bit by bit, not all at once, piece by piece. And um, how do we transfer some of that back to where it belongs almost? You finish with that, then we've got the next one, Dara, my next my quote from Kirk. Uh, yeah, if you'd like to take it away, Colin, that'd be great. Kirk, um, to put that context in this, this is a, a young woman who has a father who's involved issues with alcohol for a, good, not a long number of years, but as far back as she can remember. Um, and the family have kind of put up with it. But she's got to the point where um, her daughter's noticing that her, her granddad's acting different definitely and very aggressive and very loud and things like that. She doesn't want to go. So the daughter has took a bit of a back step from the family. And this is a conversation she had with her mum. So it's my mum asked me tonight, basically, when I was going to stop being like this and go and see my dad. She was acting like I was the one in the wrong and being a bit silly. I had it out with her and it wasn't something daft and I couldn't pretend it hadn't happened. All the madness, especially now, it's affecting my daughter with this crazy letter she received. She got a letter of her granddad. I said to my mum, I would rather our conversation was kept between her and him, but I doubt it. And that's the context of the story as the daughter's had to back off. But now, and in the next few sessions we had, she's actually been ostracised by the whole family, which includes brothers as well as mum and aunties and things. So this one person's been affected by the alcohol so indirectly and so far from it, but she's auntie's uncle's cousin, the rest of her talk to her. And it's just... I understand. I do under, I understand the family want to be to be normal and to be okay, but to the point of where you're normalising somebody's drink, that the person's been allowed to be aggressive, proper drunk driving, these sort of things, and it's still okay for the family still to come around about. How do you expect change if you're not going to change your behaviours around about the person? But how does that work for the person that's been ostracised because they're the one that's standing up? But it not being normal and wanting it to change, and the way it will change by we're, we're asking people. To, rather than enable, put boundaries in. And she's put the boundary in 
that I, want my, I don't want my daughter involved in this, but how do you accept then the, the ostracization, ostracization of the family? How does that work? Have you come across anything like that, Dan? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm really struck by that example that you've shared there, Colin, you know, and I think it, we, we talk a lot about kind of family units and and quite often we use that analogy of like the the model on top of a of a of a baby's kind of crib you know those those little models that you would see spinning around and almost the daughter's the the one that doesn't want to spin the same way as everyone else does but the rest of the family just wants to stay in exactly the position that they're in and just constantly write that ship you know keep keep to the status quo and i think that's so so difficult when you when you feel like you're the only voice of reason uh, saying this needs to end boundaries need to be, be put in place you know i need to do something about this but you've got an entire family unit just acting acting and pulling in the complete opposite direction from what you're pulling in um, it just makes it so so difficult and, and that that poor lady to be ostracized by all of her family essentially as a result of that i mean i think it's 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 just too much you know it's, it's a lot for someone to bear um, and it's her relationships it's that lady's relationships that are being affected there she's the one being cut off not necessarily the the dad who's got the drink problem um yeah, I mean, this is this just shows that such a common experience for for so many of the families that I work with. You know, the the a lot of the time, you know, I can think of like a a mum I worked with who was really desperate to um, support her her son, and she had three three children, um, and one son was using coke at the time, um, quite you know quite significantly, really really harmfully. Um, but she wasn't able to then see her other two children because they they had had enough of his shit as they put it and decided that they were cutting him off and that suddenly meant not only was she not seeing her two other adult children but she wasn't seeing her grandkids either you know the the four or five other grandkids underneath all that and um you just think about about the tremendous tremendous effect of that you know she's she's had to choose this one relationship in her life because from her point of view no one else well this guy needs some support or she can't leave her son completely on his own and as a, as a result of that she's been sort of cut off from all these other really positive supportive relationships in other areas of our life so the ostracization is really really painful i mean i see it from i was trying to see it from the family's point of view and i get some of it but if they, if they were getting results and the dad was staying off the drink i try to get help then i would see it but they're actually just more enabling them that when he does come off for a period of time then everything goes back to normal within two days so for two days back to normal parties and celebrations and talking about holidays and stuff and and then as soon as it's as soon as he's heard it's okay then it's back to drinking again because they're just all i'm doing is just drinking and they need to part with my stuff and the daughter's realizing that this cycle is just going to keep going on and on and on it's not because the, the sons of everyone else are daft or the mums it's this try to keep things normal for the sake of the community around about them for the rest of the family the people that don't know about it and it's that's uh, the, the Right with the mobile above the Bitcoin's bed, there's this one person who's guiding this mobile and deciding who gets affected by it. And the people that are accepting he's he's okay just now, that they're he's tapping into their saying it's okay. But the one person that's really bugging him is his daughter standing up, and that's who's ruining the family. She's actually getting pilloried for, for ruining the family relationships, right. and she's the one that's like, only one that's And it's like so bizarre to see from the outside. And I've spoke to the boys, and they get the idea that that are enabling their dad but they don't know what else to do because they're too frightened to step back right. in case there's that relationship we need to keep it as normal as possible because he is trying and it's not happening it's, it's and the families do so desperately want things to be okay and that's why right. people tell other family members it's happening that's why it's kept behind closed curtains most of it or used to maybe a generation ago we're getting more open about it now and more people start to talk about it because that isn't because somebody else is doing these kind of jobs but it is still that keep it keep it hidden keep it normal yeah. Right. Sure, it's just so much easier, isn't it? You know, there isn't a problem. Let's just deny it. Let's just let's just as a family unit elect to choose that actually there is no problem. And that person who's trying to tug at that that mobile and, and pull it away and pull it out uh, out of kilter, they must be the ones in the wrong. We'll just we'll put the wall up and we'll stay there and we'll just keep things stuck. And what what kind of you know you think about the message that that's sending to everyone else in the family if any of them ever decide in the future actually do you know what this this isn't okay um they're going to have exactly the same experience they're going to be ostracized they're going to be cut off and um it's, it's just it's painful to hear that isn't it you know th yeah. that message being sent to so many people yeah i mean i'm working working with the woman for a good while now and she's got to the point where she's making the decisions of what she wants to do it's like, what is it you would like to do about this and she goes well, I'm not having my daughter engaged in it, and I don't see why I should be engaged in it when it's no help and it's actually making it worse. And okay, I'm getting a bit ostracised, but I actually feel better that I'm making the right decision for myself. Wow. And I, I, if my dad gets help and all the rest of it, and he's there, and 
we get in touch, then I'll be there. But I can't be I can't be in the midst of this madness that's allowing him to be this way. Wow. I, I hate the enabling words saying just say, I don't like it. It's like it's your fault, and that's not what it means at all. But yeah, come out of the chaos and, and sort it with, with yourself so you can cope with how life is going rather than join the chaos, which is a hard decision to make. It's no easy. It really is. Now, every now and again, I'll get a message saying this is hard, and I know it's hard, but. And I said, well, do you still feel this is the right thing for yourself to do? And it is for her, and it's for her daughter as well. Her daughter's old enough to make some decisions through her mum's guidance or whatever else. So for me, if it feels right and it sounds right, then maybe it is right for her. And she's going along with that. And she's feeling a lot better about it. It's a really brave thing to do, isn't it? You know, she sounds like she's she's kind of come to a place in her life where she's realised that what her own values are telling her is that this isn't right and she can't live like that anymore and, and to keep acting against those values to pretend that there's nothing wrong would, would make her feel really torn up inside and just come to a point where she's realised it's more important for her to live her true values which is this isn't okay I need to do something about this and I'm not prepared for me or my my daughter to be part of it um, and it's such a such a brave thing to do to, to risk that. Yeah, the, the ironic thing is one of the guys came to me and he's running his own business and he says I've started drinking at night because I'm sitting worrying at my dad and what's happened the rest of it. So he's actually taken that on board and he's still near it enough, but he says, I'm actually starting to drink so I can get to sleep because other days like at night thinking. So he was changing his values that much. It was actually affecting him mentally. Wow. So, and he's coming into the idea, but he's still doing the enabling, but he's trying not to do it as much, but it's still kind of edgy. He's no fully committed to it, but he's, he's changing his values to sort wow. else out and to be comfortable with that. How comfortable are you changing your whole value system around a bit for somebody else? Now, rather than another, you have another belief and move on, change your beliefs, whatever, but to actually change your values about your, what you think of yourself. Yeah. That's really astonishing, that. It really is, you know, that idea of someone shifting their own values towards what the, the family want them to do almost, and, and maybe even drinking as a result of that to kind of handle that. That You know, the, the word in counselling talk about incongruence, you know, when you're not living by your own values and almost like a way of handling that is by drinking. So it sounds like that 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 son that you mentioned almost is is feeling that incongruence and has started to drink in order to try and cope with that, you know. relationship, wow. his relationship with his family was started to deteriorate as well. And he saw the kind of the slightness to what his dad was doing. And that's what kind of woke him up to it. That was his, well, well, I've, I went too far this way. And he's trying to kind of back off a wee bit, but it's still kind of falling into that trap. It's, as you said earlier, it's easier to just kid on it's normal. It's only maybe Sunday or every second Sunday you need a kid on it's normal. The rest of the time it's just texture doing. So you can remove yourself enough physically that it's okay to do it. But it's still, this thing's still spinning. This one person affecting all these people still spinning and a bit affecting them all. Wow. Yeah. That's a great example, Colin. Thanks for bringing that in. I was going to bring in another another quote that we shared with me. Um, and again, this is thank you so much to the people who sent these quotes in. I think that's just really wonderful. And I just put out that I put out a really simple question: How does alcohol affect your relationships? And I was given a really thoughtful answer here. So I just want to share it with you in, in full. Um, so to give a bit of context, this came from um, a lady, a, a mum. So a mum to an adult daughter um, who, for some years now, has had a an alcohol problem, and she's found it really difficult to live with and cope with that. Um, and she says, to witness your beautiful daughter destroy herself, both physically and mentally, is soul-destroying. One of the most destructive of emotions is to love and at times hate the person closest to you. I ask myself again and again, why is alcohol so glamorised, made so much a topic of fun and hilarity on our televisions, made so readily available in our shops and supermarkets, and now so attractively packaged to attract the young? Yes, it makes a great deal of money for alcohol companies and taxation for our government, but what about the cost of human life, health and happiness? Which I think are all, all really um, amazing questions that that lady's asked. And she also, she summed her thoughts up um, by giving us a bit of a, a mnemonic for alcohol as well. And I just want to read out what she said. So um, she said that A equals absence of trust. L means lost relationships. C, confidence destroyed. O, for opportunities lost, H for hopelessness, O for overwhelming despair, and L for loneliness. Cool. So thank you so much um, who, for the person who sent that in. Again, so so well thought out, um, and so it just touches on so many points. I think there, you know, I think the I want I want to come back to the really the core issue she talked about at the very beginning about about watching her her daughter destroy herself, um, and and just how difficult 
that has been. Um, this this lady, her, her daughter um, has has drank, but has also had some mental health difficulties along the way, and it's meant some really some really frightening situations that she's been in. So when she says that her daughter is destroying herself, she doesn't just mean metaphorically. Sometimes she, she means physically, um, and that's been really really challenging for her her to watch. You know, she might. This is a lady for for who putting a boundary down can sometimes mean that her daughter may self harm or or may may go to, may have a quite extreme reaction to a relatively small boundary. So she she's trying her best to to just manage things from a day to day basis. How do I put a boundary down and say, you know, I wouldn't go and get your medication from the shop today, um, without that becoming a risk to her daughter. How does she manage to reassure her daughter that actually she cares for her and loves for her really deeply, um, but actually she's also not prepared to tolerate some of her behaviour and that that line sometimes feels really messy. You know, some for for many of us out there rejection is just rejection if someone's displeased with what we feel we just feel rejected and we react in the way that we react and um i think that's been a really challenging um for this particular family and i think that that quote there one of the most destructive of, of emotions is to love and hate the person closest to you i think that's just so indicative of, of where so many families are at. I, I love my family members so so deeply and so much so much so that i've sacrificed so many other relationships in my life so much so that i've sacrificed so many opportunities in my life to be with them and spend most of my time with them and looking after them but i also i hate them sometimes i hate the fact that they don't they aren't motivated to change i hate the fact that they're not doing the things that are asked of them i hate the fact that they're not taking the responsibilities that they need to have on their own shoulders um, i hate the worry that i have for them i hate the constant fear and tension and dread whenever i'm not with them because i don't know how they're how they're doing or if they're even alive and well um, and I, I just think that's so strong for this family. Um, have you got any thoughts on that, Colin? Is that something that you've you've come across? Yeah, without a doubt. I, I think the, the self harm and, and stuff. If you if you ask me to do something or tell me you're not going to do something for me, whether it's a five minute walk to the shop rather than picking you up in the car and running you, I would just you know I'll do. I'll just kill myself because they've run out of threats. They've run out of things that they can do because they've done the worst they've done with what they've taken with the drug or the alcohol. Or the alcohol, sorry. But the next step is I've just committed suicide. And if that threat's there, some people can cope with that because they can get the point they're not actually going to do it and maybe live with that. But some people can't cope with that and will react every single time. And I've got one person who who has a, a life cycle of looking after this person 24 hours a day nearly because they're so frightened to step away from that chaos that the person will actually not just self-harm, but suicide. And that's scary stuff. And for, to, to ask somebody to come off it, it doesn't matter how small, you're looking for a movement to taking some of the control back it's still as scary as hell and it's it's a long long period of time it's just incremental by that much every time i'm putting my hand up as a very small amount okay sure <laughs> yeah i get that and it's, how do you get out of that cycle without taking a risk do you have to take a risk then to say for my own sanity for my own thing because i've got to the point where i hate this person or hate the person they've become when they're doing this do you have to take that extra week and a jump go, I'll need to do this for my own I'll have to do this for my own sanity, my own life. Does it come to that? Do you would you how do how would you go? Do you put that as in a boundary? What could you do? What's the smallest thing you could do? Yeah, I think I think that's such a wonderful way of looking at it. What's the smallest thing you could do? You know, those small tiny little increments. And for, for a lot of people it can be that very, very small change. Um just just one little bit at a time. And it may take a long time, but you're right. We we do need to sometimes take pos- positive risk taking. You know, it's a it's a, a concept sometimes used in, in mental health as well, positive risk taking that you might put in a someone's risk plan, you know, how how can because we, we don't want people to be wrapped in cotton wool. We, we need people to be able to take a little bit of risk and take some responsibility in their own lives. So, and sometimes we have to be the catalyst for that. We have to ask for that. We have to, to push for that a little bit. But it doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be dramatic. It doesn't have to be, you need to change overnight. It can just be small. It can be tiny little steps. Um, what, I, what I found was helpful, if somebody was <clears throat> really involved with alcohol, like, there's no way you could say, you need to cut down. That's like, no chance. I'm not doing that. But if you can actually get something that's out with the addiction, I had one woman who's some drunk every night, aggressive, getting thrown out of the house and then back in again, police called. And I says, what else really bugs you about this? And it was, he leaves his washing line about. Aye. Okay. I says, how much does that bug you? It really bugs me. I'm hating him. I want to strangle him by the time I've picked away his clothes up. And I says, what could we do about that? And I says, Aye. well, I'll probably ask him if he could put it in a black bag even. I'll do his washing as long as he fits in a black bag. And that was a big conversation that night. No about the alcohol, no about the job, no about girlfriends or anything he was doing. Just like, can we sort this out? And he went for it. 
because it was nothing to do with addiction, but it's, it's how do you feel? How do you feel? I feel as if my life's changed completely. I know he's still doing what he's doing, but for just this minute, I feel as if I've got a wee bit of control back. And then you can move on to something. You've had a conversation, there's a boundary in, but it's no this horrible, overwhelming thing you've asked, like, I'm not going to pick you up and take you five minutes to the shops, you need to walk yourself. It's right. to do with something completely different. Not completely different, because it's part of the behaviours of laziness and lethargic or whatever else. I'm not joining in with engagement. So that, that sometimes works. It just takes the pressure away. I don't know if you've tried that yourself, yeah? Yeah, I think you've shared a, an example uh, that comes up quite often. You know, it's amazing how much uh, washing up and, and clean clothes make a big difference in people's lives, but it really does. And if you're, you know, the, the elephant in the room is this massive addiction and, and alcoholism or, or drug use or whatever it is. And it feels like that because the elephant's in the room, you, you need to talk about it sometimes. But um, but actually, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you need to talk about the small things and begin there because that, that problem's too big to tackle. But we can tackle something smaller. We can tackle going down to the shop. We can tackle uh, washing up your clothes. We can tackle cooking some cooking some food for one night a week. And those are things that are within our control. And I mean, I think it goes back to the, the kind of serenity prayer idea, you know, that, that sort of finding the things in life that you can control and the things that you can't and, and the wisdom to know the difference really. So I think that's such a useful tool for family members that are out there. Um, that normalisation of conversations rather than every conversation being about that, just what you've said. I, I've got it in my head. It's normalising the conversation that I, I'll still talk to you about other things rather than I'm just in your face the whole time with what's happening with your addiction. Yeah. Aye. It's hard that, isn't it? You know, and uh, I was again talking to a family member relatively recently about that, about this idea of we need to avoid those kind of hour long conferences that we have around the person about about talking about it and what they need to do and how they need to move forward and you know we use craft quite a lot so there's no surprise craft's going to come up a wee bit in a conversation today but craft says that actually if we're going to communicate with someone about an issue then let's just do it in, in two or three minutes let's do it in, in no more than than say five minutes actually we can get our point across in that amount of time and it doesn't need to sort of go on on more than that which i think is a really nice uh, thing to stick to um and you know, just coming back to this this lady's quote and and talking about the relationships and and her life, you know, not not only was her her sort of primary relationship in her life was with her is is with her daughter, um, and it continues to be. And, and one of the things that's really been interesting about that as well is it's cut her off from her other children and her her other sons, and um, she's not her her daughter feels has a really strong reaction when other family members come around so her daughter feels really um, guilty and ashamed of who she's become and compares herself to her, her siblings so suddenly this lady's now going oh well actually I'm, i might not have family around i might just leave that for a little while and not see them because it just causes too much difficulty and too much drama and you can just again see that knock-on effect to, to these other relationships all about this lady you know these these sons who, who have done have done really well for themselves and have, have kind of made a, quite a big success out of their lives and they've got grandkids and you know they're they're suddenly holding back and not coming over to see their mum who they can see is in real distress because uh, mum's saying no please don't because it will just be, it'll be too much upset it'll be too much drama uh, for us to deal with and I just think it's so challenging that you know and you, when you think about alcohol and relationships you think about that primary relationship between you and the, and the alcohol user but it's those other ones all round about it that really that, that you don't really see or don't think of as as clearly that, that just makes such a massive difference. Yeah, um, and destroy relationships over a period of time because the people that are on the outside kind of look around become further and further apart. To the, even when a person gets better, it takes years for that trust and for that communication to get back to normal again because the amount of chaos you've caused over that period of time you've been in the addiction. So it's not just like I'm sober two months, then everything's okay. It doesn't work like that. I'm talking to I'm maybe talking about export later on. It's to do with that kind of damaged relationships. How do you rebuild that back to normal again? Because it's not just as easy. I've stopped drinking now. It's just not. Aye. Aye. You're totally right about that. You know, absolutely right about that. And it's so it's so muddy. You know, so muddy and murky. And working with a, a lady whose her her sister's kind of reducing on alcohol at the moment, and is, she's been given that that kind of advice. You know, the classic advice you get from the drug and alcohol service: don't cut down. It's really dangerous. Which is solid advice good sound advice but it becomes a license to just continue what you're doing and um you know it's it's really challenging that that murkiness that you get into those the webs of lies and oh, i have been cutting down but not as much as they want me to or been been cutting down a little bit more so could you get me an extra drink you know and, and be, been sort of pulled into this web of 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 sort of just tiny little white lies that suddenly just make the ground really really muddy really un, really shifting sands you know um very difficult i think right, 
they're doing nearly cartwheels and be told by the addiction worker, you don't you can't stop straight away. Yoo-hoo, it's a run to the pub, you know. Aye, aye. It's, it's so it's such difficult advice to hear, but you know, it's the right advice, you know, please don't take it away from this podcast. I would advise anyone <laughs> to do anything different from that. But um you know, the, it's just challenging advice to work with as a family member. And actually, for me, I sometimes really wish families could could be involved in that. You know, I really wish families, you, you might have three or four members of a family around that person at a meeting and they can all hear the same advice and can all figure out what that means for them. So well, harm reduction yeah. really is what's happening with rather than just it's harm reduction. Yeah, I've got a care plan and they can make the care plan up in their head and just spew right. out what you know, suits them at the time. If you're involved, then it's the case that this is what's happening. Didn't, didn't even come detail. This is what home detox is. This is what right. I'm doing. This is where we can take the demystified all of the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Massive, you know, and it would be so helpful. I think uh, it's interesting as well. I work with a lot of families and I say, well, what, what, how many times has your loved one tried to change before? And they're like, oh, you know, they've been to rehab three or four times. And I'm like, oh, brilliant, great, make a wee note of it. And then I'll, I'll ask more questions. I'll say, well, what rehabs did they go to? Just out of curiosity to see what kind of models maybe they've been, been under. But they go, oh, they, they were just in for 10 days. And I'm like, oh, so you mean they've only really been in for, for a detox then? Oh, is, is there a difference? You know, and families don't often even understand that there is a difference between an inpatient detox, which is from... The outside looking in is a purely medical experience where you're just slowly tapered off on a dose of, of Librium off your alcohol for seven days to ten days, and, and that's about it. But there's not a lot of counselling happening in there, and unless that person's got a plan for when they leave that detox, a plan in place to support them ongoing, then the chances of, of long-term change sometimes seem quite slim, and for family members often don't don't see that. They don't understand the difference between detoxes, rehabs, and they're just that murky world of, of, of alcohol and and drug drug rehabilitation it's very very it's quite a hard, a hard thing to get a handle on even as someone who's been working in the field for 11 years sometimes i feel a bit about my depth when i'm asking questions about that stuff so yeah i think it's, for me the, the the detox for the two weeks i think it's completely clinical but the the, the, the rehab is going to be the medical place because and i've seen the both of it the, the people in the group going that's great he's in rehab and that's all sorted i'll be done and it's no it's just the first step but right. what for that two weeks and one of them was seven weeks i went for the seven weeks you can see the family member actually changing their whole demeanor their camera the shooters and they sit stooped they're actually going to elvis concerts and dancing and things like this and things like that i don't absolutely think it's great but they thought it was brilliant uh, and you see the person changing for that seven weeks but when a person comes out all they've done is got sober there's no right. way there's nobody meeting them at the gates they say and i've one woman who went to collect them and actually got a taxi and went to the off sales before she could get there straight wow. front door at stone hill and it's like yeah that's that's like there's no joining up with that one i totally get it same yourself right. even at the three month stage and four month rehabs i can see them joining up but there is a limited it's only for a period of time and then you don't know and i get that as well but some people need a hell of a long while you know like they can prove them in ayrshire three years that's a program right Aye, that is a programme, three years, that's, that's that's a commitment for sure. That's a commitment, that's people who've been in a hundred rehabs and then they get out of committed jail and done a few things, been in so much help that's not actually doing any good and they get into this three year programme, it's staged in one year then two years, but there's right. so, much, so much stuff behind it, that's a real programme. I know not everybody can go on it because it's limited basis, but if you want somebody to get better, that's a brilliant way to do it. Just a couple of points that um, I want to pick up on again from that quote from that lady. You know, she touched on our, the, the topic there of why is alcohol so glamorised and so yeah. much of a topic of fun and hilarity on our TV, so readily available and so attractively packaged. I just wondered, do you have any thoughts on that, Colin? Any? I think it's a rent at Christmas. You can get one, buy, buy one, get one free case of lager. That's it's like a bar of chocolate and you get an extra one. You can get actually buy it and it's cheaper in price than it normally is to attract more people at the worst time of the year for anybody. And you're actually selling the lager even cheaper than what it used to be just for the right. sake of stuff. And you know the cost is for the people that's going to be buying it. You see guys going to be cases and cases and cases and stuff. And it's saving up for Christmas and New Year. Yeah. Aye, absolutely. So, Everywhere. There's a, little, there's a little gift shop uh, just around the corner from my house, which is like my 
oh my god I forgot to buy a birthday present kind of a gift shop that you run to in the hope that you'll be able to find something half decent and I think 95% of the, the things within said gift shop are Prosecco themed you know um, it's just all the Prosecco o'clock Prosecco this Prosecco that and um, it's fine you know if you're into that stuff but you know you walk into a shop like that and you just you just leave with a, the feeling that like well Prosecco life must be alright you know Prosecco that's, that's a decent thing to get into you know that feels like that's the life to live and um, it's just hard to walk away without that image these days you know there, there's so much alcohol being advertised to us at all times it's associated so much with a glamorous lifestyle and and, and I mean it's not you know I think I think this this quote from this lady is 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 vodka you know it's it's a half bottle of vodka sneaked into your 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 jacket or into a bag and, and drank on the fly you know there's there's nothing that glamorous about it in the slightest and um it's just that that disconnect you know that that massive disconnect between reality and and what we see in the tv yeah it's that one how do you celebrate without a bottle of champagne how do you celebrate a birth of a baby and you drown, drown your sorrows at a funeral and yeah how happy do you need to be and how sad do you need to be that you need a drink along it to make it Aye. even happier Aye. you can't have a celebration without it that's obvious you know it's one lady saying I'm going on a holiday and obviously I'll be drinking because the drink will be free. It'll come. It's a package as I get the holiday and the drink free. It's no right. free. It's at the beginning, but they they bring you loads of drinks and you don't need any order them. They just come and bring you drinks and you don't pay for it. It's like wow. yeah. And I feel like we could probably have an entirely separate podcast just on the, the pros and cons of alcohol uh, advertising. And I'm sure we've got some really good resources on our website. But um, I, to the bottom, drink carefully or drink awareness week or something. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> yeah drink, drink absurdly while at the same time drinking, drinking carefully. Yeah. Um, I love the idea of putting the, the alcohol down in the absence of trust. She should be on here. That's really good. That I like that. Yeah, it's great. It's great. It really is. You know, absence of trust, lost relationships, you know, confidence destroyed, opportunities lost, hopelessness, overwhelming despair and loneliness. Yeah, really striking words. Right, can that overwhelming despair and hopelessness? A lot of the people in the groups talk about opportunities lost because the son was good at school, good at university, and my daughter had a fantastic job. She was working abroad and then all of a sudden she came back and she's actually not, not worthless, but she feels worthless. And how does she build that up to get what she wants? So their expectations go up. She get back to what she was, and that expectation puts pressure on the person's inner directions. So that becomes that cycle again. Uh, it's never going to change and things. Yeah, that hopeless mm-hmm. and overwhelming despair is horrendous, isn't it? I know that that overwhelming despair really stood out to me when I first read it, and I just thought that's that's exactly what that that lady is feeling, and what so many other family members are feeling out there. Just overwhelming despair, that just real loss and. Just that feeling that you can't change it, you know, I'm too overwhelmed by it to even do anything about it. And I think that's that's sadly such a reality for so many people we work with. And um, you know, that without the without those positive relationships in your life, without other people round about you to lift you up and give you that hope when you're feeling overwhelmed, then you're really going to struggle with that. But yeah, that's exactly what's happening. You know, people are cutting themselves off and isolating themselves from these positive relationships in their lives and they're just digging themselves into a hole. And there's no one left. There's no one left dropping ropes down to help them pull them back out. Um, so yeah, quite striking that um, and sadly a reality for so many people. Yeah, it was just nice. After reading that, I'm starting to think, no, I'm starting to go, oh my God, it's, it's as bad as this. And it is as bad as that, but the reality is people do change and change behaviours and get something back. It might not right. be... Yeah, it might not be a Prosecco day, but it'd be a good day. Aye. Aye. <laughs> <laughs> well, I go into that last one. Um, Please this, this is a, a gentleman whose daughter is not, she's in a hell of a state at the moment, really struggling with hell. And he'd sent, asked him, behaviours and alcohol, could you give me a wee bit of thing? And he said, great smile. He goes, to paraphrase a Raymond Chandler quote, Raymond Chandler, the big sleep and things like that, famous author, my dad's favourite author. Uh, a person who drinks too much on occasion is still the same person as they were sober. An alcoholic, a real alcoholic, is not the same person at all. You can't predict anything about them for sure, for sure, except that there will be someone you never met before. So that woman saying she hates and loves her daughter, it's two different people, maybe you can see it like that. I know people talk about the Jekyll and Hyde and it's a different person, a great person, no drinking. Can you separate that? Is it possible to separate that person that you can still look after the person that you love and see that person? And not ignore the the hide part, but actually look at it like, okay, this this is the person they are at the moment, but I still love this other person. That's how I can 
have that hope and less despair and a bit of hope for that actually can change. Does that work, do you think, Donald? Absolutely, you know, and, and I just think I read this quote uh, when you when you shared it, Colin, and um, at the end that person also said um, the experience that my daughter is such a stranger to me diminishes me almost as much as alcohol diminishes her. Um, sure. Just at the end there, and which which really, I mean that that sentence just just really bowled me over. I just thought that that's that's astonishing, you know, that idea of. Um, the person that you love and care about, a person that you've nurtured and, and grown and helped to to develop into the person they are today, suddenly becoming a stranger before your very eyes. You know, I just think that that is people's experience. I don't I don't know the person standing in front of me, and, and when you don't, if, when you're watching someone walk around and the the shell of the person that that you used to that you care and, and love so much about, it's it's really disconcerting and really confusing. You know, how do you handle that? How do you deal with that? How do you respond to that person? How do you treat them? You know, because because they really do feel like an absolute stranger, like someone you've never ever met before. I think this can cause the kind of roller coaster thing we always kind of talk about in family stuff is when the daughter is lucid and clear because she's got an appointment that she needs to make for money or whatever else, then they see the daughter back again. And it's like, right. wow, I'm, I'm, how do I deal with this person that I know within the next two or three days is going to be this Hyde character again? And it's trying to deal with two people instead of the one person. And your, right. your, your heart and head's going up and down like that for the whole bloody time, trying to deal right. with that. Yeah, I think it's a really good quote. I get it. He's been to the... Men's group, we'll talk about them in a minute too, but he's been to that and he opened up there, maybe it's real fears and things like that. It was, yeah. Okay. Aye, it's, it's, it's just that, that terror, you know, that, that everyday terror of not knowing who's in front of you, that, that's constant uncertainty. The, 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 the floor made of sand instead of concrete, you know, you just feel like you're, you're on constant uneven ground and um, it's, it's so hard. And, and I think we, family members, they want to help the person avoid those pitfalls and they dive in but and we just want to we want to put the the, the, the cotton wheel round and we just want to protect them because we cannot let them do that to themselves again we cannot let them become that stranger that we've seen and um, so we just sort of jump in and, and wrap that cotton wheel round and do everything within our power to grab control of the situation and try and protect them from all those consequences that are bringing upon themselves um which is such a natural normal understandable caring compassionate reaction um, but it's also a reaction which sometimes we need to just step back from and go is that the right thing to do is it right for me to just wrap the cotton wool around here or do I need to kind of let this be and support in a slightly different way in a boundary way um so I I think I think that's what what it got me thinking about certainly that quote that's the idea of a stranger yeah I mean they're, they're putting in boundaries just now and it started off with the cleaning the clothes thing again and her flat and they, they've kind of upped it bit by bit and it's got to the point where they're getting on with their lives in spite of what their loved ones doing which is craft again uh, and it's working to a certain extent there is a kind of roller coaster but it's not the high the huge one back up and down every day it's actually getting more even they're actually getting quite stable themselves the daughter not at the moment but there's there's hope there she's doing bits and pieces but they've actually got quite a lot of control of their life back and i think one of the biggest thing was lowering their expectations for what they're expecting from their loved one it wasn't that she's going to be okay in six months or if we do this it'll be okay and it'll be fixed it's this fixed thing again, rather than fixing it, step back enough so the person take responsibility enough to try and fix it themselves with help and with love as much as right. possible. And be there, but not being, as you talk about it, right into the chaos of it every single day, thinking, what, how do you sort this? And they're actually joining up with families and stuff and going to wee trips and stuff, in spite of what the doors which is really cool. But definitely has a change there, but he's still seeing these two people or this one person that he knows so, so well be completely different. It's not just a slight change, it's like bizarrely different. You know, different emotions, different behaviours, different communication, different way of looking, different way of sounding and talking. Everything's completely different. I think I think for me, sometimes the reality hits that actually, that's how initially we perceive it, that Jekyll and Hyde mode. But as time moves on, I think we come to accept that actually the person in front of us is is the average, you know, they're, they're somewhere in between there, they sit in that grey area, they're, they're not one or the other, they're not the perfect person that you thought they were, and they're also not this this monster that you also see them as when they're, when they're drunk, they're, they're somewhere in the middle, they're this average, and a big part of coping with it comes in accepting that, you know, actually this, they have changed, there's something different there, but there are still parts of them that are still that person that I love really dearly, um, and, and I'm going to help them to, to kind of navigate this, you know, so I think that's, that's the reality we face, and when we accept that, we can move forward a little bit, um, and, and accept that there are there are positives to be found as well, some of those negatives to manage moving forward. I think that's it's right. accepting that the small, even the smallest of changes is good. 
and to look forward to that and enjoy the small changes rather than, okay, that's a wee change, we'll do a bigger one next, we'll do it, and it's like rushing it, it's taking it that time the person's going through so that you actually enjoy and see the positive so that it's moving forward rather than being stagnant or moving back, just any small change at all, it's positive, yeah. Yeah, a small, small change, I think, is a, a big theme of today, isn't it? You know, we've talked a lot about that small change and keeping our expectations really um, grounded about about what, what differences we might see in our loved ones from time to time. Um, and just celebrating those small changes can be such a useful tool too. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the recovery journey, and I think it's, it's maybe kind of played out of the fact that it is a journey and it is that person's journey. It's not your journey, although you're there helping along, but it's their journey to do it at their pace and their expectations and their beliefs of what they can achieve rather than what you think they should. It's hell of a hard to do it from your son and daughter, your partner or whatever else, but it, it is that, right, what, what is it they're expecting to get today or tomorrow or next week? What do they expect to achieve? Right, yeah. I think that's... That collaboration, isn't it? You know, I think that that analogy of the, if you're sitting, if you imagine the two of you sitting at a desk, if you're sitting on opposite sides of the desk and you're telling your loved one what to do and what you expect of them, you, the, the the power dynamic's going to shift and you're going to get a bad reaction. You're not going to be able to empower them or or trust them that they can move forward. But if actually you move your chair around the other side of the table and sit beside them and say, hey, do you know what? I don't have all the answers. I don't have the solution here, but I love you and I'm going to sit right here beside you and we're going to figure this one out together. Let's drop a plan just now and we'll do it side by side rather than face to face. You know, I just think that's such a that's such a helpful way of, of moving forward with anyone. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I like that analogy. If you've been affected by any of the issues that we've talked about today and you live in Inverclyde, you can contact me directly, uh, daryl at sfad.org.uk. Um, my details are all on the website, so you can get hold of me there. So if you are in, in the Inverclyde area, please do feel free to reach out. Um, support can look like loads of different things. Sometimes it's just a 10-minute conversation once a month for some people, and that's enough. And for others, it can be a lot more intense and maybe several hours a week required, and, and we're really flexible. So, so just reach out. Um, I'd also like to plug our, our men's group as well. So Colin and I run a men's group, but it's on the first and third Thursday of every month between five and half six. Um, and that's, I, I suppose, just a space for men to kind of socialise a little bit um, and to just explore difficulties and find solutions together. Uh, and yeah, that, that's us. So thank you. Uh, for myself and Eastern Barcher, my contact is colin at sfad.org.uk. Quite similar to Daryl that we offer one-to-ones, there's groups we run. Because of the COVID, we're running three meetings a week on Zoom, which we do mindfulness, and we do a writing group, which you can join in. We also do Pilates, <laughs> Jerry Yoga, and Tai Chi over the period of time. So there's something for everybody, even me. So there's that, and we'll get a support meeting every week in the Baptist Church. Yeah, you get in touch with me first, then we can maybe do something about a referral and get you started. But more than welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you're worried about someone else's alcohol and drug use, you can contact Scottish Families on 08080 101011 or by email at helpline at sfad.org.uk. We also have web chat and further information on our website www.sfad.org.uk.